Well, we just got back from a week of vacation. We went to western Wyoming, and it must have been very apparent to everyone around us that we were on vacation. I don't know if we just adopted vacation mode, and like, I don't know, I had like, I did not wear this. I have a huge hat that I wear when I sometimes go out because it's like it shades me and five people around me. Um, like should have had like this sunscreen on my nose. I don't know what was standing out about us, but it's like we would go different places and out of nowhere. So we, I was, we're in Western Wyoming. They have moose and we were like on the hunt to see a moose this whole time. And so like Isaiah and I are on this road uh, searching for this moose that was, wasn't me. Um, we were on the hunt for this moose that apparently hung around this area. And as we're just like going down this road, this guy on the golf course, currently golfing, goes, where are you from? And we're like, is it this obvious? Uh, not from here. We, we then uh, were going through this park that went in downtown, again on the hunt for this moose. And <laughs> we're like walking around and some random guy on this bench goes, where are you from? I'm like... Like, do I have, like, am I wearing clothing that has, like, Nebraska on it? I don't know, but obviously not. He wouldn't ask where I was from. But, like, everywhere we went, it was like people just came going, where are you from? Where are you from? When we pulled up to church, we were in my parents' RV. That made it quite a bit more obvious that we were not from there um, as we blocked the entire mountain view out the window of church, not knowing that we were parking out the windows. Um, yeah, it was obvious we were not from there, but we, we just took on vacation mode. We, we just like full out. It probably didn't help that it's like shorts, t-shirt, baseball cap, sandals, everywhere you went. And in Western Wyoming, it is standard jeans, button up shirt, cowboy boots, and hat. Like that probably was the dead giveaway when we didn't have all that. But we just totally embraced being on vacation, so much so that it was apparently obvious to everyone around us. But I guess it shouldn't just be vacation that, that kind of does that to us. As we've been studying through the book of Romans, we've been talking about uh, this transformation that happens within us. And, and this transformation, um, because of what the gospel is and has done to us, that it transforms us. And it makes us look differently. And that's kind of what we've looked at last week and kind of where we're going to pick up this week as we continue walking through Romans chapter 12. We're kind of finishing up that chapter and then we're going to go into 13 as well. But today we're going to really be looking at um, the need in our lives for our lives to be really lived out and shaped by the gospel. So last week, beginning in Romans 12, really was um, in view of God's mercy that we are called to live a life of sacrifice. That, that we are to, to offer ourselves back to God because of what Jesus has done. So in view of Jesus' sacrifice, the gospel message, that transforms us and, and it asks us to look different. So if we've understood the gospel, if we understood what the message of the gospel is, if we fully understand and comprehend it, really what this text says is it's really the only reasonable response to understanding the gospel is to offer ourselves back as a living sacrifice. That means giving of ourselves, our time, our talents, our treasures, all of those things back to God. And not because he needs them, but, but he asks for that back. But I think we also find, and, and what Justin pointed out, that we honestly grow. And we're the ones missing out when we don't do that. And so we grow and, and we have joy personally by offering ourselves back to God. So really a lot of what the first chunk of Romans 12 talked about was as we are transformed and as we begin to have we take on the look 
of what a Christ follower looks like. Uh, as we take that on, it's, it was really more about the function and how we work within the body of Christ and how we all work together. But today, as we kind of finish up that chapter, it takes a shift to, to not just what we look like when we come together, but what we look like when we're outside this building, when others around us see us, and how, how we live our daily lives in our communities um, because we're transformed by the gospel. So before we dive into Romans chapter 12 and finish that up, uh, let's pray. God, I thank you for your love, and I thank you for your word that we can hold with us this morning and that we can study it, that we can be transformed and shaped by it. God, I ask you to give us open ears to hear from your word and that you would, um, that you would work on our hearts today uh, because of what we're studying. God, we love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick up in uh, Romans chapter 12. We're going to look, start in uh, verse 17. And like I said, we're, we're finishing up this chapter. We've talked about the marks of a true Christian. What are some of the, the characteristics that we should have as a Christian? And a lot of what the first part of the chapter has been is about the good things that should be within you. And now all of a sudden we take this shift, I guess, to the second half that really talks about some of the bad things that probably should be absent from our life. And really this main focus of this, this last section is that we are to leave vengeance to God. Like this, this idea of getting evil, we should not want to do that, but we should leave that in God's hands. So we're going to pick up in, in verse 17. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, though, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head, and do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." So Paul's kind of already laid this out back a couple verses in verse 14, that, that there is persecution that we face. And people will look down on us just for being Christians. They, they may treat us badly, um, but, but what is our response when that persecution comes, when people look down on us? I think naturally we, we want to even the playing field. We, we think that I'm going to get back at them and, and, and get even for the hurts that I've had. But really when we do that, it turns into the terrible spiral of vengeance that when we get back at them, it has to be at least even, if not worse, than what happened to us. And then when that happens to them, they're going to come back at us with something. And it just, it continues in cycles until we just, yeah, are left in a terrible spot. But Paul picks up on this word honor. And that word, word to do honorable things in the sight of all. And, and that's, this is not just to the people that we hold in high esteem, that, that we think well of. This is to, be, to do honor to all and to live at peace with all. I love that verse. I wanted to underline in your Bible. To, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Our lives are, are to be lived out with honor and peace. And sometimes that seems like an impossible task. Right? With, with social media and everything, it seems like everybody has views that we want to throw out, and there's, there's really no way to, to live at peace because everyone's at odds. And you can just see it's like the fishing hook out there, like somebody throws a post out there just waiting for a response, right? And then you know with the 20 comments in below that it's just spiraling out of control. Um, 
it seems like it's impossible to live at peace because we have all these views out there. But this is as far as it depends on you. For you, you are to live at peace. And as your transformed self that we talked about at the beginning of 12, we need to be different to the world around us. We shouldn't be the ones jumping in on that thread to, to, to bite the hook and, and, and to be pulled into that. You're just going to get sucked in. You'll be conformed to the world and end up just like everyone else. So the next thing we're told is that we're not supposed to take vengeance into our own hands, that somehow when there are things that are done wrong, when we've been wronged, we can think that we want to take that vengeance and, and give the punishment for the wrongs that have been done. Kind of we want to make sure that it's in our hands. That maybe it's because we want to make sure it's done right. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. When we are transformed by the gospel message, when that really has done something in our lives, we should want that same thing for the person that's even wronged us. That rather than get vengeance back on them, we should want to see that same transformation within them. That God would be able to take a hold of their hearts and transform their lives as well. And so I think we kind of have to have that perspective um, as we have those hurts in our lives, that this, is, this has to be bigger than just this hurt, but really we want to see their lives transformed. So I think even to this person that hurts you, I think instead, what, instead of getting that vengeance, getting even with them, we're, we're to care for them. We're to serve them and to give to this person. In doing so, the hope that it would be is that, that it would convict them, that there would be this burning conviction of their wrongs and even their distance from God that that would become evident in their lives, so much so that they would want to turn their life from evil to good. So I think we, we can't really throw insults, blame. As much as those things we want to throw out there, it's never going to turn someone back to God. And whether we think they deserve it or not doesn't really matter. We are called to live honorable and peaceful lives. And I think some of that is knowing that, that we have to have faith, trusting that God is a just God, and that ultimately, God will bring justice, no matter what the situation is. And our goal isn't just punishment, but our goal should be for transformed believers. Our goal should be that we want to see others come to the same saving grace that has transformed our own lives. But then I think Paul knows that there's still injustice in the world. He knows that there's still terrible things happening. And as we kind of turn the corner to, to go into chapter 13, Paul addresses maybe that there is injustice in our world, and it's supposed to be handled in our world in a specific way. So a couple weeks ago, I got to go back to a family reunion. And sometimes family reunions can be hit and miss. You never know what you're going to get. You never know what topics are going to get brought up at the family reunion. And if you've been to one, you already know. Like At any get-together, there's two topics you're not supposed to bring up, right? What they are? Politics and religion, right? Those are the two things you just know. Don't bring it up because it's just going to be a feud. Well, uh, chapter 13 starts with politics and religion. So here we go. So luckily this is not our family reunion. Um, but God lays out clearly what his, his idea or his, his expectations of, of how we're supposed to live in this outside world in our, with civil authorities and in our, within our state and within our government, and then how we are supposed to rightly look at the state around us. And so politics is sometimes a touchy subject. It can make us squirmish, me included. And so 
we can be happy or unhappy with who's in office, decisions that are being made, whatever side we're on, if you're happy or unhappy with the government, I think we have to understand the context of how Paul's writing this too. Because at this time, as Paul is writing these words, Nero is in charge of Rome. And Nero is a terrible, terrible man. And this is not a democracy, this is a monarchy that, that Nero is ruling and whatever he pleases, he does. And there is no one to speak up against him or you're probably done. And I think even as we understand who Nero is and really Paul is writing these words that we're about to read in surrounded with the government being Nero and a pretty terrible guy, Nero is eventually the person that kills Paul. And even Nero, it was said that he had taken up the hobby of racing chariots. And in his, his love of this hobby, he had this stadium built so that he could ride and, and enjoy this newfound hobby. But when nighttime came, he couldn't just go flip the switch and turn the floodlights on and continue riding and racing. But instead, he targeted Christians. And he would put Christians up on the pole and cover them in pitch. And then he would use them as torches for his newfound hobby. So I think when we understand just how terrible the government was during the time that Paul writes this, I think we need to have that perspective knowing whatever our government is, this is where Paul's writing from and telling us how we are supposed to live within our state. So the very first part is he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He says that we're to be subject to live under the government. That really, like this is kind of like a military term to, to be in line with, to line up under. That we are called to live and be good, upright, upstanding citizens under the governing authorities that are in place. I, I notice that this is said very clearly. There's not really exemptions given, no matter how poorly the government may or may not be doing, that we are still called to live and to be subject to our governing authorities. And we can even ask the question, why? Why should I do that? And he goes on to say that there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of his conscience." You know, I think this, this can be a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around because I think we can get so easily into uh, our stances and viewpoints of what the government is. But really, we're asked and told to live under our government and, and to honor the, the, the place and position that they have. I, I love, as I read this, it kind of maybe caught me off guard, the title that it was giving to these people that may be in authority. Did you catch it in there? It says that those that maybe those civil authorities, it calls them God's servant. And in the verse after this, it calls them ministers of God. 
That's not normally probably the way that we have that, that same loving view, right? That we, we maybe not look at them as a servant of God. But really, this, as this is laid out, as God's intentions, they were given two things that, that we can kind of pull from those verses, that they were really called to protect the community, that they, they, were, they were to look out for those um, within the community, but they were also called to punish the criminal. And I think that was really laid out as the goal that they were going to be taking care of the injustice that's in the world around us. And as we have that need for this injustice in our world, um, that's what these, these servants were to do. And we are then called to honor them. We don't always have to agree. We don't always have to understand everything, but we are called to respect the position, knowing that ultimately they are put in place by God and they are still under God. So we can think that this is, that maybe is not fair for us to have to submit ourselves to follow after or be under these rulers that might not even be just rulers. But then I think I, I looked at this and even Jesus did that. Right before he was about to be crucified, he stood before Pilate, and Pilate's questioning him, and he just sat silently. And Pilate says back to him in John 19, 10, and 11, he, Pilate says to him, will you, speak, or will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you, and I also have the authority to crucify you? But Jesus answered to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. There, there is no authority but, under, but, but from God. So Jesus knew that the ultimate authority came from God and that he could willingly submit to God even in the middle of a cruel and unjust ruler. So Paul, Jesus, there, there are many other people that, that faced unjust rulers throughout the Bible, but I'm also thankful that we have that example from them as they faced unjust rulers because they, we have some of the greatest examples of faithful people who followed God even in the face of unjust rulers, that somehow they were still able to show honor and grace in the face of those unjust rulers. So I see that we are, they, we are be, to be obedient to God and the order that he's set in place. The next part then gets very practical about how do we do that, that we are to support and respect those that hold these positions that are in those offices. And this is, it gets extremely practical for the way that we are to honor and respect some civil authorities. So it goes on in, in Romans 13, 6 and 7, it says, but because of this, you're also to pay taxes. For the authorities are the ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So paying taxes can even be obedience to God. And as much as tax season may be my least favorite season, um, we are still to pay what is due. And I think sometimes when it comes to taxes and following authorities, I think sometimes we can get so narrowly focused about what it, what's happening in that very moment. But I think we need to have the larger view uh, of that our transformed lives, right? This is still within the context of chapter 12 and, and in view of the gospel message that our transformed self is called to live a certain way. 
So when the authorities that are around us and even the tax collectors, whoever it may be, when they get to see us as a Christian and how we live our lives, we are living as an example. So I think kind of to summarize all of that whole section of living in our, under these civil authorities, I think that we are called to be a good and upstanding citizen. And I think that we do that until being a good citizen means being a bad Christian. So until, until the, the government asks us to go directly against God's word, we are called to live an upright, standing life in view of the gospel of God. So after looking at this, this, this part about looking at the state rightly, Paul turns our attention outward a little bit more maybe to those that are around us, um, maybe each and every day. And he asks us to love our neighbors. That's really the next section is, is kind of looking outward toward those that are around us and how we live in the world around us. So Romans 13, 8 through 10 says, Owe nothing to anyone except for love for one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, and you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, so therefore love is fulfilling the law. I love that as he sums up this whole idea of paying taxes to whom they're owed and the revenue to who it's owed. I see that we're to not really have anything outstanding except for love to one another. That we can never have really fully paid love to anyone. That we should always have more love to give. And that that should be something that we are constantly giving out. So we don't look at our, our neighbor and think that we have to love them begrudgingly or there's kind of that saying that we they throw out there. It's like, well, it's the least I could do. And I understand that that's probably meant to be, you know, I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm very willing and glad. But sometimes that comes across to me. I'm like, really? That's the least you could do? Like, you couldn't possibly do any more. But it kind of just gets me going. That maybe I've joked with my dad about that way too many times and say, eh, that's the least I could do. Like, I really didn't want to do anything else for you. It's kind of how I think it comes across. But... Um, it's like we shouldn't just be doing the least that we do can get by. Really, we are, we are to fully love because in view of the gospel message that we've heard throughout the book of Romans, it should change us. It should make us want to live differently so that we show love to our neighbors so that they can understand the same gospel that's transformed us. I also notice in these verses that we have love and law both mentioned in, the, in these verses. And most of the time I can think of love and law that, that they'd be like oil and water, that they just aren't going to mix. That somehow that, that love is going to be, or that law is going to be very hard and harsh and demanding. And then love on the other side is very grace-filled and it fe- kind of very feelings-driven is almost how I think of it. And it feels like those two things aren't going to go together. But this is saying that when we love others, when we show love, the love of God to other people around us, we're actually fulfilling the law. And so really, I think as we look at this, there, there's a lot of things that we're not supposed to be doing, murder and stealing and covet and commit adultery, but the act of love, of doing good for others, is something that we should do to no end. There should be no stamp on that thing that says paid in full. We just continue loving. 
So then as we continue in verses 11 to 14, we kind of look at this idea that we are to live in the light, that we love our neighbors, we live in a way for all to see that are around us, that they could see who we live for and who we have been changed by. So those verses 11 through 14 says this, it says, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come when you, for you to awake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far from gone, and the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness, to put on the armor of light, and let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I love that Paul writes this to the Roman church, but also to us as a church, that we are to wake up from our sleep, that we're not just to sit around idly but we are to wake up, to, to clothe ourselves in Christ, to put on the armor and be ready for the war that's at hand. Because we're on a battlefield against sin and temptation, against the temptation to go back and to be conformed to this world. We are living transformed lives, and so we are, we are to be in this battle, to, to put aside the self-pleasures and the desires that we may have, but to be, instead be filled with Christ, to be transformed. And I think that's the best thing I love, that when we gather together, that as we put on the armor and we stand side by side by side, shoulder to shoulder, together with each other, we are ready for battle. Like, it does none of us any good if I put on my armor and I sit to the side and go, good luck out there, right? Like, we need to be standing side by side with each other, living out the love of Christ, because we are in this together. And I love that we get to be in it together. So, so we live each day with kind of this understanding from the book of Romans, the whole book of Romans, of what Jesus has done. As this has really laid out the gospel message, and, and chapter 12 takes that turn, it says, in view of that gospel message. That due to our sin, that each and every one of us has, and there are zero exceptions, none of us are free of sin, we all fall short of God's glory. That somehow we've chosen sin, and we've earned death for ourselves. But God loves us so much that he didn't want to leave us in that broken place. That he didn't want to just leave us alone, but he sent his very own son to come and live the perfect life here on earth. To come to us, to be with us. He sent him to live that perfect life and then to offer himself as the one and only perfect sacrifice. Once and for all to pay for our sins. So Jesus died on the cross, he paid that price for us, and then he defeated sin and death by rising to life again. But then he offers us that same gift to, to have eternal life with him. It's in view of that message that we live differently and that the world around us should see us living differently. So as the band begins to make their, their way back up, I want, I want us to understand that, that we, we're not to make room or to make excuses for sins in our lives. But we are to remember this gospel message, the good news, and we hold fast to God's promises. That Jesus is better than any of the sins that we probably too often turn to. Jesus is far better than any retaliation that we can face whenever we've been wronged. Jesus is better than the sin of dishonoring 
our government. Jesus is better than the sin of falling or failing to love our neighbors in the way that we ought to. Jesus is better than the sins of the flesh and the darkness that we can be drawn to as well. Jesus is so much better. And I think when we put all those things into perspective, when we understand and believe it with all of our hearts, I think we begin to put these things together. We should, we should want to no longer wrestle with those sins of the world, but instead we go on to live with purpose. This transformed life, we move on to live with purpose. We live our lives today in view of the future day when we get to be with God again. So we live with that purpose in mind.